The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. All right, well, we're going to turn to Daniel 7 and give attention uh, to God's word. And we're, we're taking a little, a couple weeks off to, um, from the Gospel of uh, Mark to look at this Advent series in Daniel. And part of the reason for doing that in particular was this very text to show you that when Jesus refers to himself a lot, okay, like 30 times in the Gospel of Matthew, 14 times in the Gospel of Mark, I think 30 times in the Gospel of John, that he keeps calling himself the Son of Man. Where does that come from? The answer is right in the middle of this scary chapter of Daniel chapter 7. So I want you to to give attention as we read about these images. um, This is another vision like Daniel chapter 2. And I want you to see God's sovereignty. That God is the one who's allowing these things to happen. And so keep that in mind as we go through this. We're just going to look at the first 18 verses together. Let's give attention now to God's word, Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And it, The beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by its roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and its mouth, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, 
Their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a half. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom, possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Here ends the reading of God's word. I think I'm going to pray again for us because we need it. Let's pray. Father, we ask for the illumination now. Help to understand what is this saying and what difference does it make in our lives. And we pray that we would see how glorious Jesus is and the things that are in this text are greater than any tongue could ever tell. And who is sufficient for these things to try to preach this very text? Well, we are utterly, I'm utterly inadequate, and I ask for your help, that you would reveal yourself here, and you take this word and bring life to your people. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to think, first of all, and you think of the context of, think of Daniel, the first seven chapters, as a chiasm, okay? And so when you think of like a sandwich, you've got chapter two, chapter seven, that would be the first bookends, okay? And in both of these, chapter two and chapter seven, you're going to have big vision, and you're going to have four kingdoms that are going to be mentioned, Okay, and you remember, if we looked at Daniel 2, it went into these, these four kingdoms, which we identified the first kingdom being Babylon, and then they're taken over by the Medo-Persians and are conquered, and then rises up Alexander the Great, and he's spoken of here as so fast. He's not just a leopard, but a leopard with wings, he's so fast. And Alexander the Great conquers the whole world, and he dies by the time he's 33 years old of a broken heart because there's no other kingdoms to conquer. And then you have the kingdom of Rome, which is described here as this uh, last one. And, then, and he's, gonna, he's really troubled by the fourth beast, and he's going to go on and ask for, for help and understanding about Rome. But you have these four kingdoms. So chapter 2 and chapter 7 are going to tell you about these kingdoms. But in both of those chapters, what do we have? We have Jesus, and he's presented in Daniel 2 as this little stone. And this little stone is going to take out Goliath. And it's just like the picture of David killing Goliath is this little stone has become a mountain and it's going to fill the whole earth. And his kingdom is never going to be taken away. It can't be diminished. He, he's never going to resign. He can't be impeached. It's forever and ever and it will conquer all the other kingdoms. But it starts just as a little stone. But here in this chapter... We're told that Daniel has this vision. And he's like, I saw one that was like a son of man. Like a son of man. A human being that would be greater than all of these mighty beasts. 
Could it be? Could Genesis 1 actually be fulfilled that one would be given dominion and would rule over everything else and all of the animals and all the things that are above and below and on the earth? Could man really kind of have that dominion? Maybe there'd be somebody who could come in Hebrews 2 and be described as the very one who could restore dominion to humanity for us. Well, that's what you got here, is you have Jesus being presented here in verse 13 and 14 as the Son of Man. And we'll come back to that. But so you have two and seven, you have four kingdoms. In the midst of it, you have a supernatural kingdom that's greater than all these other kingdoms and make all these other scary kingdoms look like they're, they're really not much to them. And then in the, the next uh, narrowing in of this chiasm is you have Daniel's three and six. So in Daniel's three and six, they're very similar. What do you have in those chapters? Well, you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to bow to the idol. We see God's children and God's people standing for truth and are oppressed by oppressive kingdom powers. There are power structures that bring this persecution. We see it all throughout the book of Revelation, how the devil works through perversion, but also through persecution. And so he does bring this powerful, you know, these things come out of the sea in Revelation, very same idea here. And so there's these different power structures that can be very powerful and oppressive and they scare God's people. And yet we see God's children standing for the truth. And they say, oh, King, we don't need to answer you to this. We're not gonna bow down to your idol. This thing that's 70 feet tall and 77 feet wide, this big old, you know, statue, you gotta worship this. This is, you know, this is your God, and they won't do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar, did, did he have a little bit of an anger problem? A little bit of needed some anger management classes? He was so mad that these three uh, men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will not bow, that he says, heat that furnace up seven times hotter and throw them in. And he was so haste that the people who were going to throw them in died from the heat. They throw them in, what happens? They're, they throw them in bound. And now he says, didn't we throw three men in there bound? How can I see four men unbound and one of them is like the son of a God? Jesus is right in the midst of the fire with them. That's chapter three, right? We looked at that last week. And that very much corresponds with Daniel six which we all know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And once again, God's people being persecuted, standing for what's right, and Daniel is, they're told, you're not allowed to pray to anybody but to our God. And Daniel isn't gonna do that. He just, he just keeps praying irregular prayers, keeps going on praying, just like his, he would do in his regimented set times to pray. They can't catch him doing anything wicked. They're jealous of him. They're jealous because he's being exalted in the, in the kingdom of, of Darius the Mede. And so, anyway, they catch him praying. And the, the declaration was he's to be thrown to the lion's den. And so into the lion's den he goes. Darius cannot sleep. He is terribly upset by this because he likes Daniel and he's been hoodwinked by his 
under, underlings that have come up with this plot line and he has committed himself to it and bounded by his oath that he has to go through with this. But he stays awake all night. He comes in the morning and he says, Daniel, has your God delivered you? And he, oh yes, long live the king. An angel has come and shut the mouths of these lions and all is good, I'm well, right? So they bring him out and, and the king is mad and throws his enemies down into the, the pit of the lions and, it, and you have the description that they never made it to the floor. They never touched the bottom because the lions destroyed them before they ever made it. That's kind of a vivid imagery of curtains. So that's Daniel 3 and 6 correspond, 2 and 7 correspond, and then you start with the middle part or this middle part of this chiasm is, is Daniel 4 and 5. And what do you have there? You have two almost identical stories of supernatural humbling. And so in Daniel 4, you have Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's so special. He thinks he's great and awesome, and he has this vision of this tree and this tree being chopped down. But he's talking about how great is his kingdom. And he thinks that he's just so special, and God just tells him, takes it from him, and, and makes him basically crawl on the ground where his fingernails are gonna become like an eagle's. I mean, he's gonna be a pretty nasty guy, like a cow on the ground, eating the stuff on the ground for a long time until he recognizes who the Lord is. And so in almost every chapter of Daniel, particularly the first seven, the chapters end with giving praise to Yahweh. And he's greater than all the other gods. And so Daniel 4, um, yeah, is Nebuchadnezzar actually writing and giving praise to God after his sanity is restored and his, his hair had grown as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. I mean, he was pretty, you know, interesting, interesting, you know, situation. He was made to eat grass like an ox and he was there until he knew that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And so he gets greatly humbled. Right? Well, the next chapter is the same kind of thing. Is it takes you back to the beginning of Daniel where the, the uh, vessels that were in the temple in Jerusalem were taken out of the temple, taken down to Babylon, and the whole point of that is the whole point of the book, right? My gods are greater than your gods. Marduk, praise him because he's greater than Yahweh. And that was the whole beginning of the book, and the rest of the book is to show you wrong wrong, wrong. You might have got the vessels for a little time, but in every chapter you're seeing, no, Yahweh reigns, the Lord reigns. And so in chapter five, they bring out the vessels from the temple and they're starting to, to you know, get drunk and declare that our gods are greater. They're greater than Israel's gods until the handwriting showed up on the wall and the knees began to buckle of the king because he has been, and here's this message of mene, mene, tekel, uparsin. You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting, and your kingdom has been divided and taken away from you. And that very night, the kingdom is taken away from him, and he is, that's the end of that nation. It says that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. And so we see that our God reigns in this, this chiasm, okay? So when you get to the big picture of chapter 7, I want you to see that, okay? And you have these four different 
kingdoms, and you know, I, I titled the message, you know, Lions, Leopards, and Bears, oh my, to remind us of some other jingle. Uh, probably the jingle borrowed from here to get the jingle, but, and these kingdoms seem real scary. But don't you just love when the Bible just simplifies things for you? I mean, like, it's gonna tell you real plainly what the interpretation is. And so in case you were confused and like me, you're reading all this, and you get to verse 17, it's in a 16, and it says, he made known to me the interpretation of the things. Sweetness. Here it is, verse 17 and 18. You pretty much have the rest of the Bible summed up for you in two verses. Wouldn't you like to know? These four great beasts are four kings. They shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. There we have winners and we have losers. And who are the winners? Who's going to inherit the earth, Jesus says? The meek shall inherit the earth, the saints. And he's gonna say it again at the end of the chapter when he's a little confused about this fourth beast. And again, he says in verse 27, that the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. I love how we've got a manuscript discrepancy at the end of verse 27 and we can't discern whether to translate it him or them. How can they both be true? because we share. We, we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. And so when you go back to verse 17, it says, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. How can that be? How can that be? Sunday school answer? Jesus. And what are we called in theology? What's the biggest term in the whole New Testament describing what saints are? 162 times in Christ. You're in Christ 162 times. So the reason that the saints shall possess the kingdom and receive the kingdom is because you're with the king. You're tied in with the king. You're co-heirs with the king. So if the king gets exalted and wins the battle, who wins the battle? Well, you win the battle with him. You're part of this victory. You're there. You see. So... I want to try and just trace for you this idea of how this is portrayed now in the New Testament because here you have this vision that's presented to us and it's kind of an interesting vision, isn't it? We have the Ancient of Days, verse 9 and 10. It's a picture of God the Father and God the Father is described as the Ancient of Days and he takes his seat, his clothing's white as snow, his head's like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames. Sounds a lot like Revelation 1, doesn't it? When Jesus is portrayed in his glory and then it says its wheels were burning fire. That's like Ezekiel 1, good chapter to read. Can't sleep at night. Just read all of Ezekiel 1. That'll really help you sleep if, you, if you're having some insomnia. And uh, 
A thousand, thousands, all these people served him, worshiped him. The courts sat in judgment and the books were open. So you have this throne room scene and we see who's the king? It's God the Father. And he brings judgment on these beasts, on these kingdoms, their dominions taken away. And then we see in the night visions, wait a minute, behold, there's one like a son of man. He comes to the ancient of days, is presented before him, and to him is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. What does that sound like? Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, right? Every tribe, tongue, nation, language. We're going to serve him. That's a pretty important word, serve or worship him. Now we see the son is being presented to the father. And so we're trying to make sense of this. So let's just run that through the New Testament. Jesus shows up on the scene and in Mark 2, we're introduced to the first time where he says, when the man is brought into him through the roof and he's dropped down through the roof and he can't walk and Jesus says to him, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And he says this, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus starts off with the Son of Man to let you know he, he has this thing called authority. That's the right to rule, the right to govern. He's the ruler. And he has the authority to forgive sins and heal diseases. Then at the end of chapter two, after he talks about the Sabbath and he can go through the grain fields and pick grain and eat on the, eat on the Sabbath and, and heal people on the Sabbath, and he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I make the rules. I'm Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man. He's referring back to Daniel 7. That, he's saying, that's me. I've come. Matthew 16. Jesus comes into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's a pretty big question, isn't it? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. What does Christ mean? That means Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You are Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father revealed this to you. And I'll, upon this rock, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against it. But no sooner does he get telling them that, that he now moves to a new introduction of a theme that runs throughout the Gospels. And it goes, as soon as he, they declare who he is, we're told in Mark 8 that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why do you think Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him? Because Peter knew Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And had, what, look at your Bibles. What does it say under the Son of Man in, in Daniel 7, 13, and 14? What does it say everybody's going to do? What does it say? Somebody help me. What does it say? What are they going to do? They're all going to serve him. 
They are going to serve him. That's what the, that's the son of man's going to do. And so Peter is going to take him aside and say, wait a minute, I thought you were Daniel 7, son of man. What's going on here? And Jesus rebukes him and says, you're setting your mind on the things, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. But Peter was probably more right than we think. He just forgot Daniel 9, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 13, and Psalm 22. Well, that's next week's message. That they're a little surprised that he's going to have to suffer. He has come as the Son of Man, but the Son of Man is going to suffer and be cut off. And we'll look at that whole theme next week. But you should be shocked when you read Daniel 7, 13, and 14, and you're trying to reconcile that with the theme of Mark, which is the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. How do you reconcile that with Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which says that all people's nations and languages should serve him. And he says, I come not to be served. There, there should be some misfiring of some brain cells. How can they both be true? They're true because Jesus had to go to a cross. And now we're gonna serve him all the more willingly and love him all the more, knowing that he was the Lord of glory who became so inglorious and so ugly and despised and rejected and took our sin and bore the wrath for, for us. Listen to John's witness about Jesus. This is the Gospel of John. I just threw out some of the, the shockers from the Gospel of John. And we just kind of read over these verses. They're just kind of like, oh, we read these this morning. You probably didn't even catch it. Jesus just comes along and says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the son of man. The verses like that, they just scream pre-existence. Where was Jesus when he was born? I mean, how does, it go? does John the Baptist come along and say, he ranks before me because he was before me. And you're thinking, everybody knows that John the Baptist was born three months before Jesus. How can Jesus just say, well, yeah, he ranks before me because he was before me? Huh? Because it screams pre-existence. He came down. He descended from heaven. He's born on this earth, but he's from above. John 6 Everybody's leaving Jesus. They're all, the, the crowds are getting really small because he's telling me you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and they're not liking that. And he looks at the disciples and he says to them in John 6, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Mic drop. What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where, do you take offense at that? What if you were to see the Son of Man, asc- I mean, imagine if somebody just told you that in your geometry class. He just leaned over and whispered that to you. Nobody does that. Nobody else has ever done that. Not even any great teacher has ever said that. Jesus said that. And he comes along to this blind man. And and John 9 is is a picture of of John, the whole thing. You've got people that can see, people that can't see. People that are of God. They're of the truth. Their eyes have been opened. They love Jesus. People who are blind like the Pharisees, they don't get it. And Jesus heals the blind man and he tells the people that, that were the blind man, now you can see. And the people that thought they could see, they're actually blind. He's referring to humanity. 
And so he comes along to this blind man and he says to him in John 9, Jesus heard he'd been cast out having found him. He said, do you believe in the son of man? Do you believe in Daniel 7, 13 and 14? Do you believe that? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you've seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him because his eyes had been opened. He was no longer blind. Whereas the, the Pharisees said, we don't even know where he comes from. We don't know where he's from because we're blind. You see? And so then in John 13, you have this, this isn't a son of man verse, but just catch the preexistence. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he'd come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taken a towel, tying it around his waist. Theologians say this is a whole picture that you would understand the gospel. It's a picture of Christmas. It's a picture of incarnation. It's of his birth. It's showing you how low he went, that he came from God. He came down. He went all the way down and washed our feet. Well, he washed it how? Ultimately, he shed his blood on a cross. You see, that's a big gulp when you read John 13 and you realize the preexistence. And then John 17, four and five, and hopefully you caught that when we read that this morning, where Jesus says, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. <laughs> Mic drop. Huh? What makes Christmas special? That. What makes Christmas special? For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich in heaven, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It's this, that Jesus came down. He took humanity to himself without subtracting deity. He added humanity so there was an addition without any subtraction. So that he's 100% God, 100% man, fully God, fully man, in two persons, two natures, one person, forever. That's Christmas. And so then he says at the end of John 24, or John 17, 24, he prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Go back, scroll back one line there for people to just hold that there for a minute. I desire, this is Jesus' last prayer in John 17 as he's leaving this earth. What does he want for you more than anything? He's praying for future disciples. Those whom you've given me, Lord, I want them to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. I want you to restore me with the glory I had before the foundation of the world since I veiled it all and became a human and they didn't know who I was and I want them to see my glory. What makes vacation special? Why do you go on vacation? Really, why do you go? I mean, we've been given this gift. We're going to Alaska this, this June. I'm already starting to look at Alaska. Why do you go to, to someplace special? because you want to see things you've never seen before, things that take your breath away. 
You love to go to something because you're seeing the artist and you want to know his artwork, but wouldn't you like to, to actually see the artist and meet the artist, meet the creator who made all of the created things? He said it was the work of his fingers. This was just little stuff. And we love to go to these special places around the world to see his glory. But Jesus knows what the best vacation ever is going to be. He wants you more than anything to see his doxa, his glory. And that once we have that, we have enough. And people that have come into the presence of God and have been struck down by his glory. I mean, there's this one saint that just prays, enough, Lord, enough, because I'm gonna, it's going to kill me. I'm seeing so much of your glory. It's such a beautiful thing. That's what we want is the vision of God. And those who've gone before us are experiencing it right now. What does Stephen see in his speech in Acts 7? Stephen is, is about to be stoned to death. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of God standing, I'm sorry, Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's seeing Daniel 7. It's not just a vision. It's not a dream. That's reality. Stephen is seeing the Son of Man with the Father, and then he is stoned to death. And then you go to Revelation, and you see the John's, what John is describing. He has this vision, right? And he, he turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a Son of Man. Sound familiar? Daniel 7, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow, just like the father in Daniel 7. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And John says, I fell on my face as though dead. He's seeing Daniel 7. And then in Revelation 14, we're told this. A voice from heaven said, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and for their deeds follow them. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And whenever, and, and whenever you see clouds in glory, what do you know? It ain't no man, okay? It is God, because God rides on the clouds, Psalm 68. Okay, he's, he's the one who does that. And, and God's the one who shows up in Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. And when a Shekinah, Shekinah glory comes down, both in the tabernacle and the temple, they have to get out because the glory is so great. And here, I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. There it is again. Daniel 7, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, he's now going to judge the nations, going to judge everybody, because he's the king of glory, he's the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. And in Matthew 13, we see kind of the fulfillment, or what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 13, and it ties in with here Revelation 14. And we're told in Matthew 13, as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of it, the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom 
all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Take note. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Because Daniel 7.18 is also true. That the saints will receive the kingdom forever, forever and ever. They're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And so all that should give us some reference to now fill in the blanks. What is Revelation, or what is Daniel 7 actually referring to? And I'm quoting um, Keith Matheson here from Ligonier. This is very, he's better than I was in, in drawing out Daniel 7. This is what he says. The coming of one like a son of man, he comes to the ancient of days. It's the climactic section of this vision. It's of crucial importance. Much confusion has been caused by the assumption that this text is a prophecy of the second coming of Christ. He's saying, not so. The context precludes such an interpretation. As this section of the vision begins, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days take his seat upon the throne, verse 9. The Ancient of Days is God. The scene is the heavenly throne room. Daniel himself experiences the vision on earth from his bed. The vision itself is a vision of a heavenly throne room, and God is seated on the throne. The court sits in judgment. The books are open, verse 10. The fourth beast is then judged and destroyed. Remaining beasts are given a temporary reprieve, verse 11 and 12. This sets the stage for Daniel's vision of one like the Son of Man. In verse 13, Daniel witnesses one like a Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days to be presented before him. The Aramaic phrase, Daniel, 7, Daniel 2 to 7 are actually written in Aramaic. The Aramaic phrase, bar enash, literally translated son of man, is a Semitism that simply means human being. What Daniel sees then is one like a human being. He's having this vision, wait a minute, how can a human being be on the throne here with the father? as opposed to another beast, like a bear or like a leopard. This one, like a son of man, comes to the Ancient of Days and is presented to him. The coming that is seen in this vision, then, is not a coming of God or a coming of the one, like a son of man, from heaven to earth. It is a coming of one, like the son of man, to God, who himself is seated in heaven on his throne. Just pay attention, this is important. The direction of the coming is not from heaven, but towards heaven. It is for this reason that this vision is not a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus from heaven to earth. Rather, as John Calvin said long ago, it's better understood as a prophecy of Christ's ascension to the right hand of God after his resurrection. That's what you're seeing. This is a coronation ceremony. He's coming back into heaven with humanity attached to him forever. He's a human. And in Hebrew two, Hebrews 2, he's coming and he's, here am I and the children you've given to me. And when, when Handel wrote Handel's Messiah, he understood this. You see, Handel's Messiah, we think of it as a Christmas oratorio. It wasn't. It was an Easter oratorio. It was written in 24 days in 1741. He wrote it in the summer. It wasn't first performed until April 13th, 1742 at an Easter oratorio. There's a lot about Easter. But he's going to take you through the whole life of Jesus. But after the cross, after the crucifixion, the next song is what? I've been cranking this in my car 
as high as it'll go. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift, be lifted up, ye everlasting door, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? Who is this King of glory? Who is this King of glory? Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. He's come up now into heaven, and he's busted through into heaven. He's brought all of God's saints with him back to the Father. And that's what you're seeing right here in Daniel 7. And so we're seeing he reigns. And it's all leading up to the favorite part of Hannah's Messiah, which is the Holy of course. But what is the very best part of the Hallelujah course? And for me, it's when the sopranos kick in about two-thirds to the song. And if you've got it cranked up very loud, like I do, it's almost startling the first time because it just shocks you because the sopranos are so loud and come in with such authority that the kingdoms of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and you know, the, the tenors kick in and forever and ever and you know and on and on and it leads to the, the crescendo but it begins with the kingdoms of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ he's going to reign forever and so lions leopards and bears oh my are you really that worried about them after hearing all that are you really worried like what are we worried about He's the king of glory. He's the king of glory. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. Lift up your, your heads. Guess where you are now? How can you be two places at once? I always, you know, parents love to say that to their children. I can't be in two places at once, you know. You sound really smart, don't we, when we say that? Can't be there, can't be there. I can't be two places at once. You are. You are. Where are you right now? We just prayed about it this morning. You're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're already there. Yet when Christ who is your life appears, it says you'll appear with him in glory. And yet your bodies go down to the grave. How can that be? Can't be two places at one. Oh, yes, you can. That's what the Bible teaches. You're here, but you're there. And the whole big, beautiful point of the body of the Bible is someday you won't be two places at once. You'll be glorified body, glorified spirit, put together, come back down on this earth, will reign forever. And Revelation 22, 3 puts it like this. No longer will anything be accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will Worship him, serve him. Daniel 7, 18, same Greek word in the Septuagint, meaning that you would connect the dots that the Son of Man has come and done all this. And what has he done? He has restored humanity. How does he restore humanity? Just look at your Bibles. Look over at Hebrews 2 for a minute. I didn't I don't have a slide for you, but Hebrews 2 is this wonderful Christmas story, and it takes Psalm 8 and it flips it. And when he flips Psalm 8, and the, and, the, and the writer is telling you what Christ has done. And he's saying in Hebrews 2, verse 6, this wonderful Christmas story, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man 
that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Who's this referring to? You or to Jesus? Answer, both. In Psalm 8, it was initially written about us, that we have been, what is man, what, that you care for me? You've made me lower, little lower than the angels. You've crowned me with glory and honor, putting everything under subjection, under its feet. It's the greatest elevation verse about humanity. It's the greatest humiliation verse about Jesus, that you made him a little lower than the angels to restore humanity. And so how does he restore humanity? He's going to have them ruling over everything, but, but he's saying right now, you know, I'm putting everything under subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control, but at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I see videos all the time of bears eating people and, you know, people not being in subjection and lions, you know, doing their business. And, and man doesn't seem to be like he's reigning. But in Daniel 7, we see a lion, a leopard, and a bear all being humbled by one who's like a son of man, a, a human being who's restoring dominion. And here's Jesus now doing this. How does he do it? He's made lower than the angels. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus has done it. And don't we love to see little snippets of when we see this or read about this in our day? And I'll just close with an illustration that my son actually said, you've got to read about this guy. Never heard of him. His name is Nicholas Winton. Anybody ever heard of Nicholas Winton? I never heard of the guy. He's like, hey, you got to look this guy up. He's the British Schindler. Okay, so Nicholas Winton saved 669 people. Okay, he, w he visited Czech Czechoslovakia right before the Germans were getting ready to invade at the beginning of World War II. And he meets a few people that are on the inside saying, we got to get these children out or they're gonna die. And this guy's a banker, smart guy, he lives in, in, in England. He works out a way through the train and they set up this thing called the Kinder Transport. And he worked strings. And there was some fake documents and interesting things that happened. They've made a few movies on this. He saved 669 children. The last train had 250 kids on it. They didn't get them out. Only two of those kids lived. They didn't make it. So if he hadn't rescued these 669, they wouldn't have made it. Well, nobody knew about this story. Towards the end of his life, somebody's up in the attic, find the scrapbook. One of his children or something starts reading like, my goodness, this is my, you know, my dad or my grandfather did what? And so they start doing research. And so there was a show called That's Life. It was a program. This was like in the late 70s or early 80s. And the story goes, I'm just going to read you what happened of this incredible story of what, here's what it says. They bring him onto the show, and he doesn't know who's in the audience, okay? He's invited as a member, and at one point, Winton's scrapbook was shown, and his achievements were explained, and the host of the program, Esther Ranson, asked whether anybody in the audience were among the children who owed their lives to Winton. And if so, he asked, she asked them to stand. And more than two dozen people stood surrounding Winton, and they rose, and they began to applaud. 
Then Mrs. Ransom then said, is anybody present is a child or a grandchild of the children Witten saved? And the rest of the entire audience stood up and they all began to applaud. And obviously this guy was blown away. Is that not a little picture of what heaven's gonna be like? It's the children and the grandchildren and generations and generations of all the saints that have been saved because he came down from heaven to bring us up to heaven with him because we couldn't make it any other way. And he's fully satisfied the Father's wrath by atoning for our blood. And this is what he says as he's going to the cross. He's before the Sanhedrin. He's before the high priest. And we're told in Mark 14, they ask him specifically, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed? And this is what Jesus says. This is called the great confession. Jesus says in Mark 14, 62, I am. Ego e me. That's those I am statements. I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7 is about me, is what Jesus is saying. I have come, I am the Christ, I am. And you will see me seated on the clouds. He's referring to, now he's referring to his return. And he will return. He will judge and separate the sheep from the goats. And you this morning, you need to decide, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Are you for him or are you against him? Because it says they're going to serve him forever. And that means you serve him now. And you worship him now because he's the king of glory. Who is this king of glory? It is Jesus. And, and the high priest just tears his garments. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What's your decision? They condemned him deserving his death and they began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him and punch him in the face and say prophesy and the guards received him with blows, we're told. Because he's going to the cross on our behalf. He is the king of glory. Is he your king of glory? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're the king of kings and Lord of lords. There's none like you. None have ever suffered like you have. None have ever done the depths of leaving so much in glory to come and experience all the rags of this world. We praise you. We, we see the depth of your love for us and that we are yours. Open our eyes, Lord, more and more and that we would see how we live and what we live for and what we spend our money on. Lord, in light of you're the king, we'll follow you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.